You're listening to the North Canton Chapel podcast. Thank you for joining us today. The North Canton Chapel exists to make much of Jesus every day to everyone. It's our prayer that this podcast will equip you to do just that. We believe that there's nothing like the church united together in gospel community. We'd love if you'd stop in and say hello in person if you're in our neighborhood. Our gathering times are at 9 and 10.30 a.m. Thank you again for joining us today. Let's listen in. So every once in a while, I come across a story that just won't leave me alone. And a few months ago, one came my way, and I want to share it with you. It struck me very deeply, and I think you'll understand why. So it was May of 1992. It was the beginning months of the Bosnian War. And over 100 people were standing in a bread line in the main street of Sarajevo. When three mortar shells went off, 22 people died and 70 or 80 were injured. How would you respond in that moment? If you were there, what would you say? What would you do? And that's when one man did something incredible, inspirational, and altogether unexpected. After the dust settled, Vedran Smolovich, a member of the Sarajevo Philharmonic Orchestra, dressed in his traditional starched white shirt, his pressed black tail, shined his shoes, and placing a stool in the center of the rubble, he sat down with his cello between his legs, he picked up his bow, and played a series of solos a brave service that he performed for the next 22 days. One day for every life lost. And so a shell-blasted crater became a concert hall as this lone cellist fought the battle of brokenness with beauty. And I love that story. And like I tell you, like it, just, it just won't leave me alone. The picture itself is haunting. And I love it because it's a parable about the power of beauty to battle brokenness. Brokenness isn't hard to see in our world today, is it? I mean, you just have to have your eyes open and your heart cracked open a little bit. Racial injustice and needless violence and headline after headline after headline and you just hang your head and you go, ugh. And then you think about church and you got to go, well, how does whatever happens in here, how does that impact what happens out there? It's a good question. This is our second week in our teaching series, Isn't She Lovely? The Study of the Church. Last week we were in Acts chapter 2, and you can think about Acts 2 like the church's baby book. The church as an infant. Luke, who wrote Acts, right, is a historical account of the early church. Where did this thing come from? What are we about? How did we get here? What did the early church do? And if it's helpful, you can think about Acts 2 as looking in through a window. Almost an outsider's perspective of what's really going on in the early days of the church. Today, it's a little bit of a different game. We're going to get a different look. Instead of outside looking in, we're going to be inside the church looking out. How should the church function? How does what happens in a church, as a church, impact the world around it? And to answer that, Paul stretches an extended metaphor across an entire chapter. So this morning, we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. You can turn there, flip there, scroll there, or you can follow along on the screens behind me. 
we're going to see an up-close and sometimes painfully honest personal look at the church in, let's say, her toddler stage. (laughs) Here's where we're driving today. The real beauty of the church is not what happens here, 90 minutes on a Sunday morning. That's not the real beauty of the church. The real beauty of the church is how what happens here prepares us for what is needed out there. And so with that, a bit of context. I already told you Paul, the Apostle Paul, wrote 1 Corinthians 23 years after Acts chapter 2, where we were last week. So think about where you were 23 years ago. I was in college in Chicago, dating a redheaded violinist. 23 years ago, not that long of a time when you consider how life moves, right? 23 years from Acts chapter 2 to 1 Corinthians. Let's see how the church is doing. Answer, not well. Quick highlight reel from the church in first century Corinth. Men are having sex with their mother-in-law. Everyone's following their favorite preacher or teacher and missing Jesus altogether. Members of the church are taking each other to court over stupid, trivial things like property lines, and church leaders are showing up drunk to communion while other people go home hungry. And that's just like the first half of the letter. (laughs) Paul founded the church in 50 A.D., letter was written in about 55. And so in five years, they've completely lost the plot. Quick little insight before we move any further. Becoming like Jesus is never quick. Not a microwave. It's a slow cooker. It's always a longer, harder, slower walk, which is why many people veer off at one point in the letter or later. And all throughout this letter of 1 Corinthians, like you hear Paul just like screaming, going, no, 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 you've lost sight of who you are because you lost sight of who you love. Put bluntly, the church in Corinth had become a church without Christ. Horrifying thought, isn't it? Busy? Certainly busy. Well-known in their community? Probably. Compelling? Sure. But at the end of the day, they had learned to function as a church without Christ. And that is a terrifying notion. The idea that a gathering of Christians could so lose sight of Jesus that their lives become characterized by that laundry list I just read to you a bit ago should sober us and humble us. And so with all that hanging as the backdrop, here comes 1 Corinthians 12. This text is going to break up into three sections, and we're going to take a look at all three, and then I'm going to draw some principles about how the church should battle brokenness with the beauty of the gospel. Another thing you got to know about Corinth before we get to the text, though. Corinth was a polytheistic city, and all that means is that they worshipped a lot of gods. People in first century Corinth chose gods like you and I might choose cell phone providers. Like, you're kind of looking for one that's going to give you, like, a little bit of an edge. There's this, like, modest bit of, like, kind of pride associated with each one. Like, oh, you're with this guy or that girl or whatever. And they were all over the place. Here's the quick list. Hera, the Greek goddess of marriage, had a temple in Corinth, where as a part of your Corinthian wedding, you would have sex with a temple prostitute in her honor. Tyche, the Greek goddess of chance and good fortune, was in Corinth. Apollo, the god of wisdom and the arts, had the most elaborate temple in Corinth, kind of fitting. Even the Egyptian gods Isis and Serapis found a home in cosmopolitan Corinth. But walking 15 minutes north of the town center, roughly from here to maybe like the Hoover building or just over that way, 
you'd find the temple of Demeter. Everybody say Demeter. Demeter. All right, now Demeter was, his hometown was Corinth. All right? Demeter's temple was a hopping place. Let me describe this for you. His temple had private dining rooms for parties. Invitations would be sent to you where you can dine at the gods' table. Private bathhouses for ritualistic purification. And something called an Asclepion. And here's where things get crazy. The Asclepion was kind of this private room. Think of it like a big hotel room where you'd sleep in hopes of receiving dreams and visions and healings from Demeter. And after you spent the night in the Asclepion, in further hopes of your future healing, you'd buy a little clay statue in a little shop that was attached. Think of it like the gift shop attached to the hotel. Great marketing strategy, horrible theology. And those little clay statues you'd buy would be little body parts that you were hoping to have healed. Maybe you're blind or you're praying for somebody who is blind. You buy a little clay terracotta eye. Or somebody who is deaf, you'd buy a little ear or a hand. So picture this, first century Corinth, all these little clay body parts everywhere. Mantles, cafe tables, little terracotta eyes delicately set in windowsills or nestled in doorways. Here's what we need to see and why I'm bothering to bring all of this up. The Corinthians had been taught to think about health and the body as disconnected parts rather than a unified whole. And so growth, track with me on this, only comes through isolated parts because Demeter wasn't powerful enough to heal the whole body. And into that dark, fear-ridden paganism, Paul drops this theological bombshell. Take a look in verse 12. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit... We were all baptized into one body, Jews, Greeks, slaves, free, and we're all made to drink from one spirit. You see what he's doing there? Paul takes all those little clay statues, individuated and isolated, autonomous and alone, he grinds them up into dust, and he blows them away. His point If you want to make it as a church in first century Corinth, you can't do it on your own. When God works in his church, he works in everyone. He isn't some small, impotent, pagan God who can only treat little pieces. What Demeter is powerless to do in his cute little gift shop, our God did through the cross. Now all of that is interesting, but what does that mean? This is going to sound a little strong, but... Please hear me. I think one of the greatest oppositions to church in 2023 United States is what I would call the idol of individuality. That the goal of life is to find myself so I can express myself, actuate myself so I can become myself. That sounds more like Demeter's Corinth than it does for the way that we should be thinking about church. The unity that Paul's describing here 
isn't some vague sense of like kumbaya, cute, everybody smiling, holding hands for a few minutes on a Sunday morning so we can just feel good about it. He's saying something much deeper, much clearer, and something much more formative than that. He's making the theological statement that Jesus is the only God who can bring diverse people together, who would have otherwise no business even being together. But in his bringing them together, invite them to lose themselves in the expression of the body. Now, I think we've got to acknowledge that is a very un-Western, un-American way of understanding Christianity. And it lays the foundation for where Paul's actually going to go next. Because Paul's about to take that kumbaya idea of unity that we're all like, yeah, this sounds really good. And he's about to drive it a lot deeper. What he sees is the church is unified. It is not uniform. So Paul takes that metaphor of the body and he pushes it further. Here's what he says in verse 14. For the body does not consist of one member, but of what? Many. And then, as if anticipating us going, yeah, so what? Paul imagines us eavesdropping in on a dialogue between several body parts, which I think is such a fantastic way to get his point across. Here's what he says in verse 15. If the foot should say, well, because I'm not a hand, I don't belong to this body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear would say, well, because I'm not an eye, I don't belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. So he imagines a foot wishing it was a hand and then an ear wishing it was an eye. This is just delightful to me because it strikes me as like one part children's fable and then one part theology lesson. This is just fantastic. Like second grade story time, right? So with their attention raised, wise Pastor Paul scoots his chair up, leans into the children on their first century Corinthian carpet squares and says this in verse 17. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? Doesn't that sound like a great teacher? And you're like, oh, like light bulb. Implication, you matter. You matter. You have something to offer. You were made on purpose, and you're here for a purpose. Such a beautiful, powerful, simple lesson. And the whole thing should have this securing kind of effect. But then Paul takes that children's fable-sounding picture, and then he launches into some incredible theology in verse 18. He says, but as it is, God, now he brings God into this whole thing. God arranged the members of the body, each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. Don't miss this. Your church is tied to the sovereign purposes of God. God organized the local church the way he wants it. God put this whole thing together for his purposes. We're here for him to accomplish his mission. And this is probably one of the reasons why that idea of just like me and Jesus and a Bible on the couch idea of doing church, like you can't, that doesn't, that doesn't hold water for very long. We need each other and we fall short of who we're supposed to be in Christ without community. And this whole body extended metaphor, you might be an eye. You may see stuff that nobody else sees and you go, that bugs me. You may be an ear, you may hear conversations 
and you go, man, they, they, they said something. There's something underneath that word. I, I kind of got my interest. I'm probably a mouth. <laughs> no amens there. Good job. That was a quiz. You can laugh. That's all right. <laughs> but if I'm just a mouth driving down the road preaching to myself in my truck when I'm by myself, I'm not doing a whole lot of good, right? And so this is Paul through this very clever metaphor saying, you matter here because you matter to God. So let me get practical, and then we'll move into this third piece of this text. In my experience, there are a few surefire ways to not click as a body in a church. I'm just going to hit these really quick. First, envy. We see somebody else with their gift, and we want that gift for our own. Envy. It's a big one. Related to that is pride. Pride. We love our place in the body so much that we forget about others. Another one is fear. That'll cripple your body life. Fear, because maybe like you got stung before, and so now you don't want to move. <laughs> you just kind of freeze. Apathy. We're going to get to more this a little bit more later, but we don't see ourselves as worth anything to the body, and so we just go, eh, I'll just kind of be here. And then last one, just plain old selfishness, which is like, I don't want to contribute. I'm just going to sit here and consume. And there are others. So how do you overcome those? And to counter that, it's right there in this text. We need to see church as an extension of God's sovereignty. Take a look in verse 18 again. God arranged the members of the body, each one of them. And what I'd love to do is if we had like three hours, we'd go back here and put your name in that verse. He arranged it as he chose. Now, why is Paul saying this? Is he saying this just to be cute, just to be entertaining, just to be like a thoughtful teacher and being very clever? So having been practical, let me get personal. Here's why we need this. Because in first century Corinth, as in 21st century North Canton, there are few things harder than learning to trust other people. As long as I'm by myself, I'm good. Not really. <laughs> but the minute that I have to rely on you, that's where this gets complicated, isn't it? And so here's Paul offering this incredibly countercultural vision of church. Church, people who are different in all the ways that don't matter and united in the one way that does, Christ alone. So how should these pieces and parts function, Paul? Great question, glad you asked. Corinth was the Silicon Valley of its day. Very innovative place to be. The downtown square was full of shops, entrepreneurs, social climbers, aspiring businessmen and women, all vying for influence. Status mattered. Self-promotion was expected. Self was the value of the day. If you were innovative, you went to Corinth. You wanted to make yourself look good, build your brand, get your platform, you went to Corinth. If you saw other people as a means to achieving your goals, Corinth was for you. I'm sure glad I don't live in a culture like any of those things. So with those cultural values in the air, Paul imagines a scenario now where based on their position, somebody in church thinks they're better than somebody else. So hard to imagine. <laughs> So here's his corrective in verse 21. The eye can't say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. 
On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. Parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty. That's pushing the metaphor too far, Paul. Hang on, buddy. He's talking about what you think he's talking about. Which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed... Oh, look, he did it again. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it. Why? That there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care. We're going to come back to that phrase, the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. So what's going on? Paul just went from you matter, that's verses 14 through 20, to everybody else matters too. See how he built this? The one holding the door in the morning is just as valuable as the one standing on stage giving a message. Why? It's in verse 25. It's the way God designed it. That there may be the same care for one another. Quick little Bible study tip. Leave this verse up. We'll look at it. Whenever you're reading your Bible and you see the word that or so that, grammatically, that's called a purpose clause. The only reason you need to know that is it's going to give you an insight into what God's doing, his design. And usually when you see God's design, you also see God's heart. Why did God arrange such a frustratingly complex body? That the members may have the same care for one another. And that's the word, same care, that I want to lift off and put under a microscope for just a few minutes. At first, like, if I say the same care, like, that sounds really good. Like, if I look at Bill and I say, Bill, I mean, I care for you. Like, oh, that's so cute. Like, and you would probably respond, hey, I care for you too, right? Like, we got this little, like, sunset heart hands, right? Like, this is really, really good. This is wonderful. Here's the problem. That word doesn't just mean care. It also means concern. So now I go up to Bill and say, Bill, I care about you. I love you. It's great. I'm also concerned for you. That just kind of moved into a different space, didn't it? That got a little darker. got a little heavier. Like, I don't know. That word in Greek is a much richer word than what we might think it would be. And what does that mean? Lifting up from first century Corinth, dropping into 2023 North Canton. Growing as a Christian means that you are going to see things that you've never seen before. You're going to be aware of things that you've never been aware of before. And things are going to bother you like they've never bothered you before. You're going to become less apathetic if you're growing as a Christian. Your heart is going to get softer if you're growing as a Christian. This past week, a few of us sat in my office for about an hour and a half and we talked and we prayed, seeking the Lord's wisdom to how to help a single mom and her kids who are about to get sucked into the tornado of the foster care system. And we're saying, Lord, what do we do as a church? How do we come around? Thursday afternoon, I sat with James, who's pastor at Citizens Akron. And I listened as he lamented everything that's happening in Akron these days and 
how he is trying to be angry and sin not and leading his church in the process as he tucks his daughter into bed at night within earshot of demonstrations. Spent time in a text conversation with a couple whose marriage is under such tension and spiritual attack that they're just not sure what to do. This is church. I'm about to use some very unmarketing language. I'm going to unsell you on this whole church thing. Do not come to Jesus if you want less burdens. Come to Jesus if you want better burdens. Don't come to Jesus if you're looking for benefits. And don't join a church if you're looking for what you can get out of it. Instead, follow Jesus, be a part of his church, join the movement only if you're willing to be concerned about the things that he is concerned about. And now I already feel the pushback because someone's going, wait, didn't he say like, come to me all you are weary and heavy laden and I'll give you rest? Yes, he said that, he did. But that same Jesus also said, you wanna be my disciple, pick up your cross and die daily. He also said, you want to find your life? Be willing to lose it. He also said, go sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and then we'll talk. Worst sales pitch ever. Come and die and find your life. That doesn't work. Now, doesn't that sound gloomy and dismal and not very marketable? Come to church, be burdened. Where's the hope in that? Church is just a visible reminder that we are surrounded by fellow burden bearers who walk this road with us called life. And then on top of that, that we have a Savior who says he has a light burden. What that means is he doesn't have a whole lot on his back, and so he can handle whatever's on yours. We don't carry his burdens, he carries ours. It's my conviction that the reason that so many churches close their doors every week in the United States is not because they're not putting on a great show. <laughs> it's not because people stop tithing. It's not because preachers stop preaching. It's my conviction that churches lose their influence because they simply stopped caring. And caring is not a program. It is not a strategic objective. It's not anything you can metricize. It's a posture that you have to take. The devil's substitute for love isn't hate. It's apathy. So here's the moral of the story as it relates to doing church, and then we're going to talk about what this means for us. Do not come to church. Do not come to Jesus if you want less burdens. Come to Jesus if you want better burdens. So that's the text. Now we have to ask, how do we take 1 Corinthians 12 and overlay that on our lives today? And it's to that question that I want to turn our attention for these last 10 minutes or so. So born out of 1 Corinthians 12, here are four implications for church. There's probably more, but we're just going to do four for this morning. First, church means bearing together. Bearing together. There's this old Swedish proverb that goes like this. A sorrow shared is a sorrow halved. A joy shared is a joy doubled. Quaint sentiment, isn't it? But I hope you can hear the words of Paul under there. If one member suffers, all suffer, right? The word for that is empathy. I'm willing to bet that in this room today, most of you would say, hey, I'm saved. Okay, Most of you, not all of you, most of you had had a point in your life where you have said, I'm a sinner, I accept Jesus, let's do this thing. Most of you have had that. 
But if we don't allow our salvation to spill over into solidarity, we are not living as church. We're just living as curious neighbors, peering safely over the fence, wondering what it might be like to suffer. But when our first reaction to human suffering is, Lord, here am I, send me. What do I do? What can I give? Then we'll be on to something. Practically, this means that what happens in an Akron alleyway should matter to me. What happens in a hotel room in Altman should matter to me. To whatever extent I am connected to Christ, I am concerned for others. Put it as succinctly as I can, Christians do not have the luxury of apathy. We don't have an apathetic savior, and so we do not have an apathetic church. We do not run from pain and brokenness, we run toward it. Now why does empathy matter? Why is this so important? Not just because it's nice, although it is, not just because it's nice, but because it so closely models who Jesus is. John 11, you know it, hit him personally. His best friend dies. Shortest verse in the Bible, if you're looking for one to memorize. Jesus wept. A widow burying her only son in Luke. And Luke tells us that when the Lord saw her, his heart broke. Even on a wider picture, when you looked at his culture, it said when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them. Here's what I want us to see. Nobody should be able to out-empathy the local church. We should be the first ones there. And I get it because compassion fatigue is real, especially after the last three years. And I see headline after headline after headline after headline. The very real tension starts to build in me. Like, honestly, I want to insulate and isolate myself and look for a distraction somewhere else. But we can't do that, can we? We don't have to have all the answers. But we do have to be willing... Willing to do what? Second implication for church. Church means taking initiative. In 1995, um, a movie came out called Dead Man Walking, and it told the story of, uh, of a nun played by Susan Sarandon, which always struck me as ironic. But she is working in this prison, and she meets the, the father who just had his son murdered. And there's this really powerful critical scene where she comes up to the victim's father and she says this really well-meaning remark. She looks at the dad who's grieving the loss of his son and she says this. She says, I want you to know I do care about your family and what happened to your son. I'm gonna give you my number and if there's anything you need, you just call me. And the dad looks back at her and says this. Me? call you? Think about that, sister. Think about how arrogant that sounds. Here's the odd truth. If we just want to sit back and wait for the phone to ring, pain is not going to find us. (laughs) And some Christians kind of like it that way. Initiative is risky because initiative means entering in. And here we go again. We follow a Savior who seeks out pain. Are you thankful that Jesus took initiative to run toward our pain? John 1, the word became flesh and moved into the neighborhood. God could have sat up there and said, you know what? Those people, ugh, they're such a stress. 
I'm kind of done with them. They wear me out. Such a drain. Let's just leave them on their own. But he didn't do that, did he? He said, those people down there, oh, my frightened little children. Let's go get them. Let's bring them back. Practically, when you hear about your friend who's lost someone or lost their job or is going through a rough time, don't sit back and wait for the phone to ring. Instead, reach out and say, I know you're hurting. I'm coming over. I'm bringing coffee. <laughs> or you can send an encouraging text and just say, like, I, I, I don't know what to say. I'm just so, so sorry. I'm with you. Church means taking initiative. Third thing, church means forgiving as a reflex. I've been in ministry for 20 years. Let's go back to the body metaphor for just a minute. I've been in ministry for 20 years, and every church has tough people. And if you don't think this church has any tough people, bad news, you might be one. (laughs) Sorry. And so here's the deal, though. Whenever you're in community, conflict is inevitable, going to come. When conflict comes, you got a couple options. You can run away and hide, which is very, very popular in our age of divisiveness. You can hold on and get bitter, also quite popular. Or you can release and get free. So we're going to do a little audience participation here for a minute. Uh, Stick out your dominant hand. So you right-handers, right? Well, here. There you go. Right-handers, this one. Left-handers, right? Stick out your dominant hand. I want you to make a fist. Go hard as you can. Don't let go. White knuckle that sucker, okay? Grab it as hard as you can. We're going to hold this for about another 50 seconds, okay? Squeeze that fist. White knuckles. This is like holding on to something that hurts you. And in a minute, we're going to do a little forgiveness exercise. Keep holding. You're about 40 seconds, okay? All right. What's happening right now, I'm not a doctor, so... If you are a doctor, you can check me on this. What's happening right now is your brain is rewiring some stuff, and it's going, oh my gosh, they must be holding on to something really tight. I'm going to give some extra strength down there. I'm going to re- like rewire some stuff. I'm going to make this thing happen. And your fist is actually becoming something a little bit different. It's getting a wrench in it, like a cramp. This is what happens when you hold on to an offense, okay? In about 10 seconds, we're going to let go. Don't do it yet. Keep holding on. Last little squeeze. Okay, hold it tight, hold it tight. Five, four, three, two, one, and release. Everybody does the same thing. Now relax your hand. Look what happens. Like it naturally curls back up. My left hand, no problem. What's happening? The longer you hold on to something, the harder it is to let it go. Everyone wants to go like that, like, come on, reset. Ugh. It takes about five minutes for your, your, your hand to actually reset, the muscles in your hand. It takes about five minutes, even though we held it for one minute. This is what forgiveness is like. There's a point where you release it, but it's also a process. Like, you've got to fight to keep that hand open. Like, I don't want it to curl back up. I don't want to get wrenchy and, like, crampy again. And there's a good chance, that as we did that exercise, that there's somebody who came to mind. There's a good chance that there's somebody who hurts you maybe part of our church, maybe somebody in your family, maybe 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago. Is there a phone call that you need to make or a text you need to send? You're not meant to go through life like this. When you become a Christian, you release your right to retribution. Retribution. 
It's worth remembering that 1 Corinthians 13, love is patient, love is kind, right? Keeps no record of wrongs, love believes all things. 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter, which is like always read at weddings, follows 1 Corinthians 12. <laughs> this painful look into the body, which is full of people who are sometimes hard to love. What did Jesus say? They'll know you're my disciples by your Sunday morning services. No. The world is not watching what happens on Sunday morning to see if they want to give their lives to Jesus. That's not what's compelling. They're not listening to me. What are they looking at? What did Jesus say? They will know you're my disciples by your love. Fourth implication for church. Born out of 1 Corinthians 12. Church means courageous persistence. And I want to end where we started. Vedran Smolovich, the cellist of Sarajevo. The real beauty is not that he did that once, as awesome as that is. The real beauty is that he did that 22 days dodging sniper fire and mortar shells going off around him. And he's there in his tuxedo playing Adagio in G minor. The real beauty of the church is not that we filled a building on a Sunday. The real beauty of the church is not that we sang some songs that most people like. The real beauty of the church is not that someone said some semi-eloquent words that landed nicely on your ear. The real beauty of church is how what happens in here prepares us for what is needed out there. Here's why courageous persistence matters. The work is never done. The work of the church is never done, not until Jesus comes back. There's always mortar shells going off in our world. And we're always dodging sniper fire. There's always brokenness. And the work is never done. And every day, you and I, have the privilege to stand amidst the rubble and play. And play with a braver beauty. I'm so very glad that you are here. I'm so very glad that so many have called North Can Chapel their home church. I'm so very glad that we get to grow and enjoy this journey together. And if you don't know Jesus, the brokenness can be absolutely overwhelming and it can be hard to battle against. And if you do know Jesus, like we heard Xavier say this morning, it's this very simple confession of faith. If that's you, you know that there's hope beyond the brokenness and you can battle the brokenness with the beauty of the gospel. And if you don't know where you stand with the Lord, you're still trying to make sense of the brokenness around you and trying to find hope between the shell shock. Today's the day. Let me pray. Lord, we say thank you again. We say thank you that the brokenness around us does not have the final say. That 
the war is actually over, the victory is already won, and the enemy's just going down, kicking and screaming. And so Lord, as we, your church, move forward in these days, help us to keep your gospel so very clear. Help us to show it in the way that we love each other, the way that we love you. Lord, I ask for courage. I ask for persistence for your church. These are very hard days. You've given us everything we need. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the cross. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name, everybody said, amen. Thank you for listening to this episode of the North Canton Chapel Podcast. If this ministry has blessed you in any way, please share this episode with your friends or spread the word on social media. If you subscribe and leave a five-star review, it goes a long way to helping us make much of Jesus every day to everyone who hears these podcast episodes. You can also donate to this ministry at nchapel.com forward slash give. Thanks again for joining us. May you go out into your places and spaces making much of Jesus every day to everyone.